0: It's so sad to me because when you look at the science, it's really clear this this very important period that is not just a period of immaturity. As people say, it is a period of opportunity that you can really look at as necessary changes. Take, for example, just the reward system change. We need to really think not as this is just a horrible period of violence and risk-taking dangerous behavior, but there's a natural drive for novelty that's not only important for the individual, it's actually important for our species.
1: Welcome, I'm your host, Nicholas Strauss, and you're listening to the Participant Observer, a space where you become aware, a place where you are the Participant Observer. Thank you very much for agreeing to uh, speak with me today. I very much appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. So your ideas about interpersonal neurobiology are, are just really remarkable because they speak so much about energies that we, of course, all use all the time but can't see and wonder in wondering about ourselves, just what is going on. And it's it's really extraordinary to have you map it for us. And I assume that's very much part of you defining mindsight. Specifically, adolescence and your book, Brainstorm. And I was wondering, do you have different notions about one's mind for different life stages? In other words, I understand it develops over time and at different life stages, the actual capacity or limitations might be greater or or less. But are there distinct differences that one doesn't develop, but perhaps evolves into and then loses other parts of their mind as they grow well
0: it's an interesting question mindsight is a word for myself you know that i made up in about 1980 when i had stopped medical school because my teachers didn't see the mind of their patients and it was really distressing for me to watch people being cared for by really smart professionals who seem blind to the mind so on my time away i kind of made up that term to protect myself when i went back to say well Some people have this well-developed skill. Some people have some of it developed. Some people have none of it developed. And I should be careful not to use my teachers who lacked it as examples of how to be, but sort of as anti-role models, an example of how not to be. So that's where the idea of mindset first came up in my own life. And, you know, since then, it's just gotten deeper in my use of it in terms of the understanding of it. So it's insight into yourself, empathy for the inner life of someone else and an acknowledgement of, you know, the importance of differences and the linkage among differences, which is the word integration. So Insight, empathy, and integration are the three fundamental components of mindset. So, your question about developmental stages is great, and I think mindset is a perceptual skill. It's a way of shaping the quality of your life, and it does develop over time. And you can develop it with intention. And so, in all of these ways, I think mindset does have, let's say, in the first year and a half, two years of life, how the sense of self starts to emerge in an infant and then grows into the toddler period in the brain and how that relates to the body. And then you can look at you know the period, let's say from three to nine. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens where kids begin to learn about the nature of their mental lives, how feelings affect their thinking and reasoning, how feelings affect their interactions with other people, what feelings mean in another person. And then from, you know, nine to let's say 12, this pre-adolescent period, there's a lot of shifts and depending on the timing of puberty and other issues, there can be all sorts of variations in the timing, but kids begin to think in more abstract ways especially about relationships, so that between 12 and 24, of course, this adolescent period, you've got a lot of changes in mindset abilities that directly affect your sense of meaning in life, your sense of well-being in life, and your sense of relatedness to other people. And what I found is that how you navigate the adolescent period, I found this, I think, for maybe myself personally, but also professionally working with kids uh, when they were young, continuing to see them on and off during their adolescence and now knowing them as young adults. You know, how you navigate that adolescent period relates, to mindset really determines how mindset is set up for your early adulthood, and I've worked with people even in their 90s who had very little mindset skills who develop them as they're approaching the end of their lives. And it's not over till it's over. You can always develop these skills.
1: I think that's that's what's so extraordinary about its relationship to neuroplasticity, if that's if that's the way to term it, because in the therapy work. That I do you often encounter people who may have had let's say early attachment issues and what you start to understand is that through the therapeutic relationship itself there's something going on that is not entirely dissimilar from what occurs in early life stages where it's almost as if you can experience the mirror neurons at work where somebody is internalizing you and getting a sense of self, they're sort of uh, adapting and modifying and reforming and decoding, encoding again in, in this relationship. It's, it's almost as if you can feel it happening if you really put your attention on it.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally right. And, you know, the, the feeling it happen, I think is an important way of phrasing the notion that these, these skills inside empathy and integration completely shape the quality of our relationship with ourselves and the quality of our relationship with other people and you know you say well what's a relationship with yourself well how you are in touch with your thoughts and emotions and longings and dreams and then how you negotiate those in your life is a way of defining you know your relationship with yourself and if you don't have the ability to see the mind then those aspects of your mental life are kind of blurry and there's not much you can do with them. So this idea that Mindsight is both a developmental process that happens, but also it's something that you can shape is really crucial for thinking about well-being. You know, educational programs, therapeutic programs, families, the way any of us support the development of other people in any of those contexts, you know, is really, really important.
1: And it's so very difficult sometimes to explain, although you do a wonderful job of, of explaining it, but in the, in the therapy room before assigning one of your books, so to speak, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, trying to explain to somebody that you're going to understand this through the experience of it. In other words, in this connection and experiencing attunement and experiencing mm-hmm. sharing with me, you're going to get a sense of what it is. You'll feel it happening. And that's it's very difficult to convey that, of course, because there's no conception of it yet if you haven't already developed some of it. Mm -hmm.
0: that's right right and this is where it's so you know i mean for me as a you know (laughs) part-time academic part-time therapist it can be so frustrating because you know people can you know with just physical sight can think that this mind sight thing you know seeing the inner subjective experience of other people is dumb right (laughs) it doesn't exist right
1: or it's it's hokey or something you know yeah. yeah yeah that's that's right And it's, but see, that's why I'm just so thankful that you've put so much into words because you, you lend a science to it. And I am really fascinated by the neurobiology because I'm sure there's so much more to be established through research, but it seems to me that we have all kinds of ways of interpreting energy and signals that the least of which is our language. And so whether it's through temperature receptors or other sensory means, whether it's through, you know, some kind of magnetic, gauge in our ocular lenses or auditory um, filters, whatever it is, we have ways of sort of decoding and accessing our library catalog, our hard drive, our semiconductor storage and Mm -hmm. in in any space and kind of figuring out what's going on. But to explain that is so difficult. And then when you, you use actual proven ideas about neurosynapses and how certain biochemical reactions and receptors communicate signals, it it really helps not only lend credibility, but make it very clear that this is actually going on. We're very sophisticated beings.
0: Yes, we are. And, you know, what's, um, I think what's so rewarding about doing this work in all these different areas of, you know, therapy and parenting and education is to really honor something that's very real, but not so much quantifiable. And so this is where it becomes Uh, Almost like all of us have to work together to support the fundamental way in which this capacity to acknowledge each other's subjective experience, to respect that is not just fluff, it's something very, very real.
1: Right. Well, I think that's a, you know, a natural segue into how to honor or acknowledge and support adolescents in particular. That, that's, that's difficult very much in, in, in the way that we we're just talking about how to explain these ideas to people who haven't begun to grasp them yet. Well, adolescents are very much like that. They have not begun to grasp many things. And as, mm-hmm. adu- as adults or therapists or teachers, were with them, trying to help them learn to forecast, trying to help them learn to use better intuition and insight. And I I, I was struck by uh, what felt like a paradigm shift in your book, in which it seemed you were saying, well, let's steer clear of focusing so much on the on these hormonal changes. It's almost like talking about treatment for substance abuse. You're focusing so much on this chemical stuff as if a person is not really involved. And instead, you were talking so much more about how the brain develops and just one's experience of life is expanding. And how do we meet somebody there? How do we guide them? How do we intersect with them when perhaps they experience us as a foreigner? And in some ways, even though we've been adolescents, it seems we experience them as foreigners.
0: Well, you know, this has been the amazing journey of the brainstorm book. Uh, You know, when the hardcover first came out, I I had no idea how it would be received because... you know, I decided to write a book for adolescents themselves to read. And then I realized that adults need to have something too. So I wrote two companion books all woven into one, and then that didn't work. So I just made them one book, which is the book that's that's there. So I didn't know how it was going to happen because I was so puzzled why there was nothing written for an adolescent about his or her own brain. And the books that generally are out there, and even recent magazine articles that have come out in the last week or two are so insulting to the adolescent period, importantly recognizing the risk that's involved, but never looking at the upside and and, and, and not empowering adolescents, but sort of, you know, uh, really infantilizing them. So You know, since people respond to how they're being treated, I think there's a vicious cycle where there's these myths that are perpetrated and that adolescents are not being given an opportunity to understand their own process. So when the book came out and adolescents started reading it and I got emails from them and and notes from them, it was so rewarding because I think you can inform people of truths about, let's say, the brain remodeling rather than raging hormones or that adolescence instead of what's usually thought of as some horrible period of immaturity, or as this recent article said, um, you know, your spark plugs are not working right, or you're just, you know, you're terror, they call it terrible teens and stuff like that. I mean, it's just... It's so sad to me because when you look at the science and even some of the science that was misquoted in these articles, it's really clear this across all you know mammalian species, not just a human thing. We have this very important period that is not just a period of immaturity. As people say, it is a period of opportunity that you can really look at as necessary changes. Take, for example, just the reward system change. The nucleus accumbens is more responsive. One of the ways of thinking about it is your baseline neurotransmitter of this reward circuit. The uh, dopamine levels are basically lower at baseline, higher at release. So you're kind of, let and bored and agitated. You want to do something to release them. And one of the things that releases dopamine is novelty. So nature makes it this way to get you to try out new things. Well, in our culture, you know, modern culture, you know, you you have new things that are dangerous to you, you know, driving cars too fast, buying guns and shooting them and stuff. And so we need to really think not as this is just a horrible period of violence and risk taking dangerous behavior, but there's a natural drive for novelty that's not only important for the individual, it's actually important for our species, you know? And so it's re, it's just reframing the whole thing. And I think when adults hear it, they get a whole different take on how to work with their adolescents. And when they've written me, the adults who read the book, they say, you know, my whole approach to my experience of being a parent now is different just because I have this new knowledge.
1: Right. Well, I I also think that aside from guns and cars and drugs and alcohol or promiscuity, there are fears that parents and teachers have that therapists sometimes don't investigate more necessarily. Just about adolescents being exploited because of their curiosity. So whether it's by marketers who want to sell a new phone or another a new gadget or device that actually is, in a, in a sense, like a toy that will appeal to someone's curiosity and desire to explore novelty, or whether it's something more, sometimes something that adults don't even fully understand. It sometimes feels like a threat to the family or the family system or values. And we don't even know what we're afraid of or where it's leading because we're not not, as I said, thinking necessarily about weapons or something that dangerous, but it still feels like a threat that we sort of want to give our adolescence guidance, like maybe they shouldn't use this right now because their mind is developing so much and and maybe this will distract them too much. And I think parents and teachers sometimes get confused by some of the advances that human beings have provided as a a way of exciting the adolescence naturally. But some of the things that we've created mechanically, I think, we we don't know exactly what fire we're putting into people's hands.
0: Right. Well, and and this is where, you know, a thoughtful approach would, you know, embrace the new knowledge we have of what's going on in the brain and then would give people, you know, an opportunity to think deeply about it in a way that's in support the thing that actually amazed me about this brainstorm project was, It's a win-win-win situation. I mean, the adolescent becomes empowered to take responsibility for her or his behavior. The adult is relieved of all this kind of pressure to think that the adolescent erroneously is crazy and instead has a way to communicate with more respect and more efficacy. And the world itself has the opportunity to actually tap into the incredible creative energy and passion and drive and collaboration of adolescents. And I guess there should be a fourth win, too, which is for adults who recap, the essence of their adolescence. It's actually the essence of living a vital life into your adulthood. you know it's it's really a call to action for, for everyone.
1: Right. Well, so that leads me to another question, which is for the adults who recapture their essence. Now, in the book, there seems to be some kind of idea that adolescents possess this essence, but adults who have been adolescents may have, in many cases, and I didn't know whether you meant universally, lost the essence or it may have become dormant. And so it almost appears as if when they see it in the adolescence or an adolescent, They somehow partially recognize it, but almost as if with envy or bitterness, sort of don't recognize it or are disowning it and somehow feel an oppositional energy related to envy. Can you speak on that just a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'd love to know your take on that, because, you know, there's just this impression I have both as a fellow parent of, you know, people with adolescence, as a therapist who works with people this age, and, and also just as a science guy, knowing the mechanisms of the mind, that some of, not all, but some of the irritation that parents have, I think is an unacknowledged,
1: and also maybe they're unaware of it both, sense that the
0: you know the essence is these are these four things an emotional spark that's the passion for life uh, social engagements which is your deep commitment and connection to other people uh, the novelty or novelty seeking where you're seeking new things and the creative exploration where you're pushing against the status quo and not just taking in the world as it is but imagining a world that could be and so what we want to do is maintain those four things as we move through adolescence into adult responsibility. Now, what happens, I think, is some adults, and it's not universal, but some, maybe many, maybe most, I don't know, no one's ever done a study of this, but, you know, we'll actually lose those four things. And life becomes, you know, not full of an emotional spark. They lose their passion for stuff. They just are in survival mode, going to work, being exhausted at the end of the day. uh, You know, they are not socially engaging with other people in a deep, meaningful way like they did maybe when they were younger. Maybe they are not doing new things. So their brain is kind of getting stagnant and they're not pushing against the status quo. In fact, they are the status quo. And so in, in this way, the four elements of essence of adolescence become threatening on every level. It's a reminder of the passion I've lost, the friends I don't have, the novelty that I loathe because I'm exhausted at the end of the day, I don't want new things. And the creative exploration to me just seems like adolescent rebellion and it's just destructive. And so, you know, and yet ironically, if you look at the studies of neuroplasticity in adults, it is how the brain continues to grow in a healthy way throughout our adulthood, which it does, and it can. The essence would be kind of the best guidepost for what should I do in my life? Well, keep passion in your life, keep friends in your life, try new things and push against the status quo by challenging your mind. Don't just go with what you're familiar with. So, you know, the essence of adolescence is the essence of living a vital adulthood. And that's why I think some adults feel bad when they're around adolescence. I mean, just go to a restaurant and you see a table full of adolescents. They're laughing, they're crying. They're, <laughs> you're gay. I mean, Look at the adults. They're like bored out of their mind. Right. <laughs> so, the, the sh- so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this actually brings up a hypothesis/slash question that I have for you. I wonder: are we designed evolutionarily to learn from each other in stages so as to develop our mind sight? In other words, the adolescent, in this hypothesis, it would begin much earlier, but let's just take the adult and, and the adolescent. Does the adolescent serve in some manner or have we adapted in some manner, knowing that we will be raising a tribe or family and being mm-hmm. around an adolescent? Do they serve to remind us to cause a new release of some sort of genetic component or neurobiological response that the information shall now be reminded or released again into our system to refresh us on attunement and joy and insight. Mm -hmm. And some of these ideas that we've discussed, uh, particularly with regard to essence, the emotional spark, the social engagement, Mm -hmm. just as Erickson had looked at it, you know, in terms of life stages, you know, later on in terms of generativity, social concern becomes quite important. Are there points in our life where we look back at our younger human self at this adolescent and and, and our library system uh, suddenly opens and new information is revealed to us and says, ah, remember, remember what it was. Now take what you experienced, take what you're watching and develop more.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think people are programmed to do that, and yet think about what it's like in schools, you know. Think about what you actually are encouraged to do. It's so much the opposite of that. So I think right. there's a fundamental tension here between, you know, what we have uh, in our system and what the adolescent is really programmed to need, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I think.
1: Yeah. I'm Nicholas Strauss. Thank you for joining me for part one of this podcast. If you'd like to participate some more, please visit us on the web at www.theparticipantobserver.com where you'll find all things related to the Participant Observer. We'd love to hear from you because you are the Participant Observer.